Hey Auntie is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. We acknowledge that this is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Cullen Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Indigenous Australians and Indigenous mob all over the world. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. you are. I've been expecting you. I've just popped the kettle on. Come on in. Hi, and welcome to Hey Auntie. I'm Chantelle Weatherall, and it's my absolute pleasure to have you join me. Hey sis, come on in, take a seat, and make yourself comfy. With Hey Auntie, we're going to remix the proud tradition of the Black Auntie, and we're going to use it to demonstrate that there's millions of ways to be a magical black woman. Sounds good? Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey! Hey! So welcome to the season finale of season one of Hey Auntie. Our first ever Hey Auntie Live. We met in December in Melbourne at the wonderful Acme X and were joined by an incredible panel of powerhouse sisters. We had Grace Diblack, Leela Gurawiri, the amazing Namilla Benson, Leah Avene, joining myself and a group of 80 amazing women and men for a chat titled, Hey Auntie, How'd You Not Give Up? Wow, a pretty big topic, a heavy topic, but one that we thought was really relevant, especially as we were ending a year and ending a season. How do you not give up? How do you cope and keep going against the myriad of difficulties that you may face on a day-to-day basis, small and quite large, when you exist at the intersection of being female and black? We talk about our coping strategies, we talk about our wins, we talk about our struggles, and we laugh and have a few tears shed throughout. This was an incredible conversation with the women on the panel sharing so much and the women in the room holding a beautiful, positive and supportive space. It was a magical evening, guys, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Now, we did have a few technical problems picking up the mics of two of the panelists, Grace and Leela. I have done my best to work my audio wizardry as much as I know, and uh, splice together a couple of recordings for you so please forgive me if it's not as smooth as we might wish but what's shared is beautiful and I know you're going to get so much out of it check it out I'd love to hear what you think it is boiling hot in here and you've all come on a night when you could be chilling at home to come and enjoy the first ever hey auntie live show with us thank you so much Now, before we do 
anything else, I want to take the time to acknowledge that we are meeting on the sovereign, never ceded land of the Cullen Nation. Um, I am such a proud resident of Cullen land, and I'd like to thank and acknowledge their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge any other indigenous people in the room from Australia or elsewhere. I know that we've got beautiful First Nations people from PNG here, from other countries in the world. I acknowledge you and respect you and thank you so much for joining us. Now guys, without further ado, let me introduce you to my gorgeous panel. So, starting from the right, the beautiful Grace de Black. Grace is a mother and a carer. She is a strong and proud PNG woman. She's carved out an impressive career as a creative director. She's the founder of B1 and B Collective. And she's basically just a creative powerhouse. And I'm so proud to call her one of my close friends and sisters. Next, we have the beautiful Layla Gurawiri. Layla is a proud Yolongu woman, originally from Elko Island in Northeast Arnhem Land. She is a hugely popular presenter on the Margaret Footy Show. And she's also an absolute gun on the reggae music. And she's taught me a lot about music that I thought I knew everything about. <laughs> Next, we have a familiar face to many of you, Namilla Benson. <laughs> Namilla. <laughs> Namilla is a veteran broadcaster, a producer and a presenter. She's a mom, she's a mentor to many, and she's a fierce champion of women and people of color entering broadcasting uh, and new talent emerging. And last but not least, the beautiful Leah Avene. Leah is also a proud mother, musician, broadcaster, and educator. She works focused on decolonizing our consciousness through telling our stories to free our spirits. She's also one of the hosts of All Our Stories on PBS, and uh, she works extensively in uh, therapy and writing and public speaking. I'm Chantal Weatherall. I'm the... <laughs> I'm the rookie broadcaster behind the mic for Hey Auntie, and I cannot tell you what a treat it is to see all of your beautiful faces here tonight. Hey Auntie is just four months old, and this episode is going to be the finale of our first ever season. Hey Auntie came about because I started having incredible conversations with my sister friends, and I thought, goodness me, I could have done with having some of these chats about 10 years ago. And so I thought, why don't we share these chats with other people? I'm sure that if these are the questions that I need to ask, they're questions that other people need to ask too. And the response has been absolutely beautiful. And so to that end, tonight's topic is, hey, auntie, how'd you not give up? And so I'll be sitting down with the lovely ladies now, and we're going to get chopping it up. Thank you so much, guys. So, hey auntie, how do you not give up? Um, the best summing up of this, I saw the other day on Instagram, all of my best wisdom and uh, philosophy comes from Instagram these days. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a post by um, a young woman whose handle is The Slum Flower. You may have seen her. 
she started what seemed like a really light-hearted movement called hashtag saggy boobs matter and they do matter and so do small boobs and all boobs <laughs> um, and she, I think everyone took her very lightly, but she has now emerged to be a very strong, incredible, young black feminist voice. And she posted this the other day, which I found incredibly moving and incredibly relatable. So she said, it's a very exhausting day to be black. And just for today, I want to opt out if it means that I can escape the trauma of having to explain that everything is about race. She wishes that she had a black mentor. She says, I wish I had someone who would remind me that I am not the problem just for pointing out that there is a problem. I wish I was surrounded by black people in every single space that I enter, if it means that I won't have to explain myself. To the black people who find themselves muted by fear in the very spaces that they once dreamt of entering, I see you, I feel you, and I love you. Exactly. <laughs> I read that and I thought, goodness me, she's 24 years old. She is uh, at the top of her game. She's published four books that have become bestsellers in the UK. And still, she is feeling isolated and small and having to push that big rock uphill of living at the intersection of being a woman and also being black in this world. And so I do think that there is something unique about that. And so my first question to our beautiful panelists is, what is it that's different? Is this something that I've just cooked up? Or are there different bumps in the road that we go through in our path to success that other people just don't realize? What do you reckon, Namilla? Look, I think there definitely is. And I think, um, you know, part of... <sighs> Our, our just existing in certain spaces. I know that for me, I wrestle continuously just with the ongoing fatigue of silencing, self-silencing and erasure that I do for myself because you don't want to be seen as difficult. You really have to pick and choose your arguments. You question yourself and you've delved into a lot of these questions through your podcast so far as well, Chantel. But, you know, am I going crazy? Am I being difficult? Weighing up, you know, wanting to have earnings and to just exist and knowing that you could actually risk your position in certain ways, like it's something that's constantly ongoing. And I just, you know, you can't always be seen as the one to raise problematic issues because then you are constantly seen as being the problem and you flagged that already. Yeah, I feel like so often as black women, we are put in a position where we have to choose between our mental health and our livelihoods. But it's also things that you can't control. So when your hair is seen as being difficult, I know that, um, you know, when I was working in TV, my boss wanted to have a word to me about my hair and my jewellery just being too big. We know that that's very coded. And in fact, what she's offended by is my blackness and my pride in my blackness. And that somehow you're a little too much when you're just existing as you are. And her seeing that somehow as being costume and that I can just take it off and change it to make it more palatable and to make her feel more comfortable. So it's that kind of stuff as well where you're like, oh, do I flag this? Because if I go to HR, how do you explain that to a white person? It's so difficult. 
without mentioning the R word. Like, and that's the truth. Never you know? mention the R word. <laughs> so, uh, Leela, you work in broadcasting. Have you ever felt that you had to choose between being your full and authentic self and succeeding? I've been really lucky in the sense that most of my spaces that I have been in are very culturally safe spaces, um, specifically Margaret, which the majority of people that are in that space are Indigenous. Uh, the people that are invited in that space are also culturally safe and we uh, welcome them when they come into our space as well. So uh, it's been good for me in, in that sense. Um, speaking specifically about colour, uh, it's been uh, a bit more interesting in the gender space because I do work in a uh, male-dominated space. Uh, football, AFL football in general, um, sports in general is a male-dominated space. So it's always quite interesting having to find your own space and your own power within the space that's already there. And especially since the majority of people that control that AFL space are middle-class white men that know nothing about multiculturalism in any facet. So, um, so that's been the most interesting thing for me in that space. I can just imagine. And Grace, you spend a great deal of time not only opening doors for yourself, but opening doors for young people who you mentor and who are part of your creative collective. How have you seen them facing different pressures on this path to try and succeed while still being authentically themselves? Uh, it's, um, I think I have to give props to those that have come before us because the ones that have come before us had a lot more difficult um, and I know that in particular in the spaces that we're all in we're kind of chartering new uncharted waters you know so I think that um, a lot of younger people um, these days it's a lot um, more I guess accessible if we're paving that way for them so you know you having your podcast Namilla doing her talk show um, and being on uh, radio as well. Um, you know, Leah, Layla, everybody kind of contributing to that space really allows the younger generations to be able to have um, some some access to those spaces where you know a lot of us didn't have that prior. Um, but it is challenging for a lot of uh, young people as well because. Um, a lot of people in the industry, in commercial spaces especially, don't take a lot of young people, POC people, seriously. Um, because they don't speak the language in the way that, you know, the institutions do. Um, so it's very hard for a lot of young people to convey their ideas, pitch their ideas, be taken seriously in these spaces. So I think that, yeah, that has been a real challenge for a lot of the young ones. Absolutely. I think it's something that I really prioritise talking about on the show, about code switching. And something that we highlighted was that actually code switching itself even is a privilege because um, the ability to choose when to fit in and when not to is something that you know, is afforded to me. There are people for whom the gates are just shut on them before they even roll in there. So that's something I always try to be aware of too, my privilege in choosing whether to code switch or not. 
when I picked this subject, someone said to me, oh yeah, okay, that sounds good, but give up on what? What do you mean? And I said, well, <laughs> I said, I said, look, <laughs> I said, to be honest with you, I've left it that open because there are days when I've got to be honest with you guys, I feel like pushing back the duvet is more than I can manage. But I know personally for me, the real, uh, the real precipice that I face of do I give up and where I'm challenged is uh, feeling like I will give up being my full self, feeling like I will capitulate and I will hide and I will fold up into a small palatable pill-sized portion of me so that I can be safe. And that is the type of giving up in particular that I want to try and form resilience against. Um, but I think that it looks different for everyone. And so I'm really interested, Leah, for you personally. What has that uh, sort of struggle to not give up looked like for you? And I know you work with a lot of young people. So maybe you could talk about what you see in the young people you work with too. Nice, easy question for you. <laughs> this is this is a little bleak, but if I'm if I'm perfectly honest, for me, the times where I've wanted to give up have looked a lot like not wanting to live, and I've really struggled with my mental health over the years. And I mean, that isn't a um, that isn't a will I say this or won't I say this. Like it's just, it all just becomes way too much. It's the weight of it is so huge and it feels like nothing can be changed. Um, and I do see that in a lot of young people and I do, um, you know, bound in to work a lot of days or sit around with fam and say, you know, colonization is only just this tiny little bit of human history and our ancestors lived through much worse than this and you know we've got to remember our stories and you know we've got to find more representation and the structure the structure you know and I say all these things but on the worst days you know it's it's really hard to think about any of that because it's such a big job we have in front of us to walk forward and keep our heads up and look out for each other and find each other. Um, so I, I say that because I think it's something people don't talk about very much. And it, I think it's, you know, I see you if this is part of your story. And I also say that because it's really um, – you become very acutely aware of life itself, I think, in those moments. And so being on the other side of wanting to live as a choice um, is an incredibly empowering thing as well. So I think, yeah, I, there are two extremes there. One is this is so hard and sometimes I feel like I am trauma and I will never be anything but this. And from that place comes a deep appreciation of life and everything that I do have and how well I carry this trauma through the world. Whew. Amen, sis. 
I know. Thank you. Thank you. I have been overwhelmed by the generosity and the courage of the women who've been guests on the podcast in sharing these vulnerable stories. And I know that I have felt incredibly seen when I have heard them. I think that there are few and far between spaces for black women to feel safe enough to be vulnerable. And I really love that you shared that and I really appreciate it and I know that there are people in the room, myself included, who that resonates with really strongly. I don't think that we talk enough about the cost of this constant microaggressions, macroaggressions, lifting your head, putting the smile on, being, uh, being exoticized, being infantilized, having your personal space invaded, and somehow still managing to be delightful. I didn't know I was going to say that. I actually thought I was going to get up here and firstly comment on how many babes there are in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to just add that. It, it doesn't translate well to podcast land, but damn. <laughs> I love that. Um, I really wanted to ask uh, one of – I'm obsessed with quotes, if you guys haven't noticed yet – um, and great aunt Marion Wright Elderman said, you can't be what you can't see. And when I think of not giving up, I think one of my biggest struggles is that I don't think that I have any direct role models. I have wonderful women in my life who are incredibly strong, but their challenges are not my challenges. And I almost feel uh, a bit ridiculous when I talk to think of my grandma and my mom and the things that they went through, when I think code switching, not quite the same. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask, Leila, who were your role models and how, how do you find role models when, you know, I'm assuming that you don't have a great aunt who hosted a footy show. Our laughter is dangerous, be careful. I certainly did not have a great aunt. <laughs> <laughs> a funny show. Uh, I think what Grace said before about being those, those young women that are creating, building bridges for the next generation um, is what we're basically doing as young women because, you know, there's generations before us that have done amazing work and um, I wouldn't be doing the things that I do if it wasn't for those women, um, you know, having to deal with atrocities that I can only imagine. Um, but I think my biggest role models, uh, the first time I ever saw anyone that looked remotely like me on television was when I was five or six years old, and I think I may have spoken about this on the podcast, but um, was when I was five or six years old and I saw the film clip for Treaty um, mm -hmm. by Yopi Indy. And I remember like getting really, really excited because it was the first time I saw someone mirroring me exactly. Um, not saying that seeing other Indigenous people prior to that point, um, whether it was, you know, your Leah Purcells or your Deborah Mailmans or 
um, you know, Kathy Freeman, or like I would like, I'm always really proud to see anyone um, of Indigenous or person of colour in that space. But the fact that this person looked exactly like me um, just created a little spark, even at five or six years old. And I remember saying to my guardian at the time, I was like, oh my gosh, like they look like me. And then she actually said to me, they're like, she said to me, they're, they're actually family. That's all your family. You're related to all those band members. And um, so that was really cool to be able to see mm-hmm. someone that looked like me. And, and the fact that they had amazing success, not just here in Australia, but also overseas. And, you know, I find it quite time, timely because next year's NADOC theme is all around treaty as well. Um, so, yeah, so that was the first time I ever saw someone that looked remotely like me on television. And it's funny because you don't do the things you do to be a role model. You just do them because you have passion and you love them and there's joy in that space. Like for me, I never wanted to be on television. That was the last thing that I ever wanted to do. I couldn't even think of being on television because I was extremely shy and um, embarrassed about even talking to people that I didn't even know. So the fact that I'm in this room talking to all of them, (laughs) my my 17-year-old self would be like, what are you doing right now? But... um, but, uh, yeah, it was just funny because um, I, I remember my mum actually saying to me once she um, saw my niece and um, she was in one of the rooms just at family's house uh, up in Arnhem Land and um, she'd gotten into some makeup and she'd just put all this makeup on her face and just, like, yeah, fake eyelashes, like, like, all over, nowhere, like... <laughs> That's beautiful, Leela. Thank you. And for you, Namella, I know that you are my broadcasting role model. Who are your role models? And, you know, I know that you've been in the business now for a long time. And, you know, how did you keep on keeping on when you were so often the only one in the room, the only one in the building, whether that be woman, black woman, anyone who was an old white dude, basically? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing in the media game. I mean, I started in community media 25 years ago. Shout out to 3CR. That's where I did my first show. And I think having a role model in a lot of ways is a lot about privilege because it means that you're able to envision possibilities that lay before you and what you can be. So that whole thing of you can't be what you can't see is so, so true. I was greatly – I didn't really have role models as such, but I was greatly influenced by incredibly powerful uh, First Nations women at 3CR. And that was the first time that I saw beautiful, you know, proud black women doing their thing and doing it so wonderfully, so passionately, so cleverly and just with humour as well. So when I first started in radio, I did a youth home time show and I used to come on after two aunties, um, the late uh, and extremely wonderful Auntie Lisa Belair and Auntie Destiny Deacon. And they were just so, like for me to come in and follow on from two, you know, black aunties who were just everything and they were so, they would literally just, I would walk into the studio and it would just be absolutely filled with their presence and I never saw that on Australian media. So I think they were very powerful influences um, in terms of me wanting to pursue media in that way. But I come from, uh, I'm very proud to come from um, Rabaul in Papua New Guinea. I'm part of a Tolai culture, which is a matrilineal society And, yeah, the women before me and around me and who raised me and who were, you know, like the younger generation as well, they're just incredible women. And when I used to take holidays uh, every two years back to PNG, I would see that village life, yes, it's extremely hard, but then seeing the power of um, especially my bubbles who are, you know, like the matriarchs, the grandmummers in the village. I mean, I had the privilege of choice. And for me to be able to be educated in Australia and then to change that really problematic narrative around my people, my nation and my culture is kind of what propelled me to move forwards. But in terms of actually having a role model, I mean, you know, you'd see Oprah and... I mean, that'd be about it, really. I remember Trisha Goddard, this is many years ago, who used to host the 7.30 report. So there would be a black woman with braids, British accent, who used to host. Um, She would anchor, you know, news and current affairs and she was incredible. And she used to do the news every now and then. You remember, sis? Play school as well. I remember her. We all owe Trisha. I love that you've mentioned these wonderful matriarchs. I have so many of those powerful women in my lineage and my family too. I think, frankly, just by virtue of surviving, we are demonstrating our incredible resilience, resourcefulness and strength. But I also have got a bit of a bee in my bonnet recently about the whole strong black woman thing. So another quote from another great aunt. Great aunt Audrey Lord said that nothing that I accept about myself can be used against me to diminish me. Now that is a powerful quote if you let it marinate because it really speaks to me of how I reckon we're getting scammed ladies. Stay with me. How many times has somebody said, you're a strong black woman, you'll be fine? And I reckon many moons ago that was a compliment. 
But now I've started to notice a pattern that the same person often who was saying, I'm a strong black woman, I'll be fine. The same people who are complimenting you on your strength are often the people who are withholding resources from you. Um, they are often the same people who are having impossible expectations of you. They are the same people who benefit from you bearing an uneven share of the load, but think that this little compliment is enough to placate you and keep you working like a mule. And I would like to say to the room, I cast it off. <laughs> I'm no longer a strong black woman, y'all. Put the word out there. Chantelle will cry if you upset her. She will complain if you overwork her. And she will get sick if you exhaust her because she is also first and foremost a human being. So, Grace, you are someone who I often think of myself. I fall into the trap of thinking, my God, she's a superwoman. Do you identify as a strong black woman? And how do you feel about that label and how it can be a blessing and a curse? I often don't talk about my life. And it's, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I just have to spy. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. Um, you know, I, I was very young when I had my son who has cerebral palsy. And, um, and I think like for me it was really difficult because uh, I remember my best friend at the time when I had my son, it was a couple of days after and they had said that you know, he's going to pass away and you know, he's had extreme brain damage and all these things. And, um, and my best friend, there was a whole room of like my school friends in the room and my best friend, um, since I was five years old, she, she just came over and she said, because I was like, you know, my heart was like basically out of here, ripped to shreds. And, you know, I was just like, I just want to cry and mourn. <laughs> you know, I just don't know how to deal with the information that they've given me. And um, I just don't want to hear anybody say anything that you'll get through this, you know. And she said to me, oh, you're the strongest person I know. You'll get through this. And I was like, and I actually turned around and we never had a conflict ever in our life. And I just said, I don't want to fucking hear this. All I want to do right now is just scream and cry and I just want you guys to just support me in that. But I went to a white school, um, the only black, well we were the only black family at the school and um, I didn't realise it at the time because I was 23 and I didn't really understand kind of the different lenses that we all have and the life, the viewpoints and stuff that we go through in life and the understandings and obviously privilege and non-privilege and all those other things. Um, and I just realised like in that moment that I just wanted to be weak. You know, I didn't want to explain why I'm you know, feeling tormented or just like my heart's being ripped to shreds. I didn't want to explain any of that stuff. I just wanted to be able to mourn and I just wanted to be able to just go, just support me in that. Um, but as I found after a few years and stuff, like, they just didn't know how to. 
they didn't know how to support such a strong black woman, you know, like, because you, you're the strongest person I know. You're like super good at sports and you're this and this and this and this and whatever, you know, and I was just like, no, but I'm a human being. Like, so every time somebody says to me, you're a strong woman or a, a superwoman, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just human. I'm just trying to live the best life that I can with what I have. And I think that um, I've leaned into a lot of my um, life and understanding life, I guess, from a very deep spiritual place because it was survival at the end of the day. You know, I needed to find the best way to survive through the trauma and through the acceptance and find the peace in my life um, and what was to be my life. And so a huge part of what I do today part of um, me finding peace in my life and providing um, all the things that I didn't have growing up as well to the younger generations. So, you know, I think um, for me when somebody says that, <laughs> I, it, it actually is like, I know this is such a word that's been used around all over the place, but I just get like a bit triggered by it because I'm just like, you can do the same shit that I do. I'm just doing it because um, we need to have better options. We need to create more accessibility for the younger generations. We need to have representation in these spaces, in these institutions. We need to be able to be heard, seen and valued in many different forms of what that means. And we need to understand that it doesn't just come from this institutional lens. It has to come with a more open heart and an, uh, and an understanding and acceptance that we're all different. Um, and so, you know, encouraging, you know, and the community and stuff to be openly vulnerable, to like also share ideas of how to do that, that I'm going to support you through that process, that you can ask me for some guidance or, you know, like quite often, you know, just these ones here, for example, <laughs> um, you know, like I'll just be like, hey, let's just go and sit down in the park or whatever. I'm just like, I'm a big sis and I'm here because um, I didn't have those things. But we all have to understand that our strengths lie in our vulnerability. And I think that's the most beautiful part of like pop people or black people is that like, you know, we, we have been through so much that I think that... Um, that our strength, which is why we're so powerful as well, why people perceive us to be that, because we have endured so much as well. So there's these two kind of different viewpoints of like how they come to this conclusion that we're, you know, unbreakable and everything when, you know, at any given moment, like this before, I could break down, you know, like, you know, I'm just kind of holding it together. Imagine you are an actual human being. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's something really powerful in vulnerability. Like, I think I've become more and more aware of how to present that um, without a facade, because quite often I think that's just my um, way of dealing with things. It's just like, you know, everyone sees me and they're always like, oh, you're so, like, you know, out there. And, and I'm like, yeah, I am, but I'm also like, you know, I have an extroverted side and then a really introverted side, which is that real reflective persona, that person that needs to 
like go into myself to understand life from a much more deeper angle than the spaces out here allow us to. So, yeah. <laughs> My goodness, Grace. Yeah, quick. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I could not agree more with everything you said. I think so much um, of the pain of that compliment is that often what people don't realize is they're commenting on you literally grabbing the edge of that cliff face with your fingernails. It's your ultimate digging deep and your act of resilience, which people see and go, my God, you're strong. I won't help you at all. <laughs> And you're like, I'm dangling over the edge here, fellas. And so it's, it's, it's hard because we are absolutely strong, but we are so much more than that. And how do we, how do we enable ourselves to incorporate all of these facets of our personalities in our interpersonal relationships so that people can um, become acclimatized to them? And then how do we how do we ask for what we need more? How do we ask for what we need more? So I'm just just because I like just tossing all these really difficult questions out here. Um, Leah, you you work with a lot of young people. I now do not feel obliged to wear makeup. I'm wearing a set of Tiva hiking sandals on stage. I love it. I embrace it. But part of that for me is also becoming quite uh, a lot more concerned with the well-being of the younger generations. And I know how hard life was for me before I embraced um, being a messy bitch. It's been wonderfully freeing. Just talking about my pain as much as I talk about my wins. Anybody who is on my Instagram is aware of what this looks like. Um, because I actually consider it an act of service because I believe that if I just go online and crow about how I'm invulnerable and I'm winning this and that and the other thing and then go and silently cry and have all of my vulnerability behind closed doors and then simultaneously complain every girl's drinks about how there's no room for us to be vulnerable, there's a contradiction in there. Because I see this whole being a bad bitch and being invulnerable and I really am fearful that it's when you are robbed of your vulnerability, you are turned into a gargoyle. And one of my favorite podcast guests once told me that feelings that we don't process don't go away. They go into the basement and they work out and get jacked. And then they sabotage you when you least expect it. <laughs> Didn't they, Leah? So, Leah, what are your thoughts on the risks of being a strong black woman and buying into it too much, either from your personal experience of what you've seen with the young people you work with. I just have to say that I'm shaking a bit because this this is so real, this conversation, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, I was just thinking when you were speaking and when I was listening to Grace that there's this superhuman power that comes and I think particularly there uh, with mothers of, of young babies that where they literally lift cars off their children when they're in danger and I think one of the dangers of the strong black woman 
um, sort of this idea of being a strong black woman is not understanding that we've been fucking lifting cars. Like that is how urgent and how desperate and how dangerous life is for us and for our communities and for the people that we're caring for. So, yeah, we're strong, but it's because we are faced with such big work. And when that work is invisible, it just looks like you're a really strong, capable person. And so I think it's really important to make the work visible. And so every conversation, every person talking about the hardships they've come up against, their resilience, um, when, when we acknowledge what we're up against, I think it gives us a bit more permission to be like, damn, I am, wow, I am amazing. And I think with a lot of the young people that I work with, I think there are people who work with young people or people who are, I'm doing air quotes for the podcast, underprivileged or marginalised or where the idea is that I'm going to be really positive and I'm going to help you and life isn't so bad and it's um, it's really... It's really, uh, it's really condescending and it doesn't acknowledge what's actually happening. And I think if you can say, this is really hard and you're in this and I don't know what this feels like and just sit with that not knowing but acknowledging as much as you can, I think that is far more powerful than any kind of, you know, um, prescribing or like be vulnerable or be strong or be – it's like you just be and I'm just going to tell you that I can see something of what you're going through and it looks really difficult. And so when when I have that – when I give myself permission to um, see that in myself, I'm able to stop charging forward and think a little bit about the cost of charging forward and of lifting cars off people and surviving – and then the needs emerge and make themselves known of what I don't have or what I'm missing, what the deficit might be. And then I might be able to voice them if I'm really brave and ask some people around me for the things I need. But it's a whole, it's a layered process, you know. It's the invisibility is the thing that's really, um, I think, dangerous. So... Yes, vulnerability and yes, acknowledging the big sort of pile of difficulty on top of it. I really strongly resonate with what you're saying about acknowledgement because I think one of the most difficult things is, as you say, we're lifting these cars, but because we are all habitualized to the way that the world is, it has become invisible. And there are so many times when even though you're sort of 90% sure that this doesn't feel quite right, you, you still question yourself. How many times have you been in a situation where you are absolutely sure that What's going on isn't just. You feel it in the pit of your stomach, but you still question yourself because it's so insidious. It's so in our institutions, in our interpersonal relationships, it's subconscious that actually just having a friend or a, or a sister or anyone who you can say, 
hey, I, I think this has happened and it's making me feel funny. And they won't go, you'll be fine, you're really strong. But they'll go, that sounds really hard. Tell me more about how that feels for you. And that has been incredibly freeing for me. That's all you need. You need the space to explore your feelings and not have them silenced and invalidated um, because that's the foundation on which you can build your healing. And for me, what that has looked like, by way of another quote, um, is really acknowledging some of the impact on my mental health of the constant uphill struggles. Um, I have uh, become so used to talking about my mental health and what I do to stay well that now I think in my social group, I'm the go-to guy for a psych referral. Like, you need a psychologist? So come talk to me, I'll hook you up. But I love that. I love it because I know that for probably four or five years I could have done with someone saying to me, have you talked to someone about that? But I would never raise it because of the shame and the stigma. And um, I have to say that the only reason I'm on this stage, the only reason I'm well enough to have the agency to make choices and do the things that I love in my life is because I've acknowledged that I am lifting cars and I need help and I have like a Formula One racing team of mental health professionals who got my back. I've got layer one, layer two. I've got, oh no, my fingernails are coming off the cliff face, layer three. And I'm, I'm proud and we deserve that, guys. So talking about the mental health cost, Zora Neale Hurston one of my favorite great aunts that I quote often said, if you are silent about your pain, they will kill you and they will tell you you enjoyed it. Yeah. And I heard something recently that really made me pause for thought and it was that in 2017, the largest group of growing uh, people seeking help for alcohol misuse in the USA were women of color. So we are really suffering and enduring a lot and we are incredibly strong but we're also vulnerable and I know that depression and anxiety are parts of my life that I live with and I'm not ashamed because frankly the pressures that we are under would form, you know, form diamonds out of a piece of coal. So the fact that I need a little bit of help to be the brilliant me that I am is something that I am okay with. And I wish more of us could be okay with that. Um, I'd like to ask uh, my beautiful panelist, Namilla, maybe, if you'll start. What do you think is some of the invisible mental health costs? And what do you do yourself to try and set yourself up to have the support that you need? Sure. So when you're going through a situation which you absolutely know is related to your gender and your race, etc., all the different elements of our identity, it is so horrifyingly isolating and it can, like the ways it impacts us is, is really quite unspeakable, you know, in a lot of ways. I am a mother um, of two beautiful boys and, you know, in the past, again, with that sort of um, censoring myself and, and silencing myself, I don't do that anymore. I can't afford to because I've got two beautiful babies who I need to be healthy um, for. 
And so any of my uh, dear friends will be able to tell you I'm really, really good at just kind of shutting down and just dropping off the radar. And that for me is my form of self-care. But having said that, I am so incredibly fortunate to just, you know, be part of this really powerful, engaging and amazing supportive sisterhood who rally around me like nothing else. And it's just like that is the healing, the lifting I get because they do so much of the heavy lifting for me when I just really don't even want to get out of bed. And it's by cooking beautiful food. It's coming over and having laughs and, you know, just taking my babies and spending time with my babies and, you know, loving them the way that I need them to be loved, you know. That for me is so incredibly healing. And I just, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the beautiful black women in my life. Life, that I have they're everything to me everything they're the fa- they're my chosen family that's beautiful Namella mm-hmm. chosen family is such a huge thing I um I loved uh, in the quote from the summer fire that I started with where she said I wish I could have a black mentor wow that's so powerful and I know I can't mentor everyone but this podcast is about me trying to create the space that I needed when I was younger. And I know that many of us are trying to do that in our own little ways. Um, Leah, what is one thing that you wish could have been available when you were growing up or when you were uh, struggling in the past, if you had your magic wand? Probably this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And many others like it. Um, I grew up in a coastal town on a peninsula where we were the only um, brown people. Um, so um, what I saw in the, in the media was really important. Um, and I saw Vicar and Linda, Kathy Freeman, um, Ernie Dingo, uh, Trish from Play School. Um, but that wasn't very much and I really needed more examples of the things that I could be. And I remember trying to explain this to a white man once when Moana came out and I was trying to explain the significance of having this phenomenal person that was like me, you know, be so famous and so visible and so incredible. And I was like, when you were growing up, you had cowboys and firefighters and detectives and, you know, uh, like just literally everything Everything you can imagine, you could be one of those things. And when I was growing up, I did not have any of those things. There were these tiny little glimpses of hope. And so I feel like representation is really, really important. In the absence of aunties and grandmothers and mothers and sisters and being enveloped in what Namilla was talking about, and I didn't have that, And um, I still lack elders in my life. I really ache for elders. I think a lot of my mentorship comes from peers and we're stuck in this strange place where some of my elders are like, what, someone touched your hair so? Like, (laughs) they're just, do you know what I mean? Like the things that they dealt with are so much bigger to them than what we're dealing with now. And now we're in the nuance and the complexity of culture and 
you know what I mean? So it's like we're in this strange place. Um, so mentors and elders and community wrapped around me, that's what I needed when I was smaller, for sure. I hear you, and that is so much uh, a space that we're trying to tiptoe into with the podcast. I grew up in a similarly white environment and I didn't have elders to look up to. In a way, Hey Auntie for me is sort of strangely aspirational and a little bit bittersweet because I'm trying to be the auntie I wish I could have had. Um, and I would also like to say that it's an invitation to be role models for each other. Things are not always going to look the way you want them to. You can sometimes find what you need in a different form. And so many of us are third culture kids or we're dis from displaced communities. So maybe we're not going to have this beautiful lineage that some of my beautiful First Nation sisters have. Maybe we can be those role models for each other. Maybe um, somebody can lend you her auntie, let you sit with her bubba. Um, when you need one. Um, I know, um, Leela, that you grew up away from home. So how did you find those connections? And what would be the one thing that you wish was around if you had a magic wand? Because you work with young people as well. I was lucky enough that I had um, my, my, my two guardians that I grew up with. Um, one of them oh, was a man. Um, and he was kind of a protector for me at the time. Um, he passed away when I was seven um, and he actually said something to me at a really young age that I still remember to this day. Um, he said to me that um, being a woman and a person of colour will automatically make you a political statement and it's your decision how people perceive you and your choices are going to, to, to create that narrative of how they perceive you and they're not just going to perceive you, they're going to perceive you, your family, your extended family, your community. Um, he told me this when I was about six and a half. So you're like, <laughs> 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 he like, and Father Christmas is anything remotely 
they kind of might have been slightly being in that space. They were just like, excuse me, what are you saying? <laughs> so I never really had to react to that and I never really had to deal with racism on the level that, you know, some of my other peers had done before because, you know, my, my, non -in, my non-Indigenous sisters had the nous in them to understand that, you know, in those moments I needed to be, to be protected because I was vulnerable in those, in those instances. And even now, like, um, I think it was maybe last year or the year before, um, I've had a lot of stuff going on in the last few years and um, a lot of the things that people aren't really aware of, unless they follow my Instagram or Facebook and I also um, use that space to share stories that, that have happened to me. I've had you know, really close family members pass away and haven't been able to um, come to a place where I was able to fix things with them before they passed away um, due to circumstances that were kind of out of my control. I've had um, two miscarriages, one ectopic pregnancy. You know, those are things that women don't talk about, regardless of your, regardless of whether you're a woman of colour or just a woman. You know, so I use Instagram and Facebook and those spaces to talk about those things. And I remember I was in Bendigo, and I was just hanging out with one of my nieces who actually came down from from the Northern Territory, and I was with my my Koori family and a few other family members that, um, that were up in Bendigo. And my ex at the time uh, decided that he was going to be extremely controlling of the situation and he just wanted me to get back to Melbourne. I come back to Melbourne right now. And he kept on ringing me constantly, constantly, constantly. And it got to a point where I just broke because I'd been holding on to so much for so long and all that trauma that had happened and I just broke. And as soon as that happened, all of them, all those women that were in that space, completely just switched on and were like, that's it, everyone turn off their phones. We're not allowed to take any more phone, phone calls from this moment. And they're like, and then my, my really good white friend, they were like, ring Bridget, she needs to be here. Ring her right now. That's the only phone that's allowed to be on. Ring her, and turn it off. She came. And then that night was just literally a space where we could talk mm. and we could cry and we could do the things that we needed to do in that space. Because I wasn't the only one that was broken at that moment. Mm. It, just, it just so happened that me getting to that tipping point allowed everyone else in that space to also be vulnerable. And um, so that was like the biggest thing for me is having that that women's circle and even like today, like the one of one of my um, my Korean families that I grew up with in Bendigo, I, I speak to her nearly every single day. Nearly every single day. Not to vent to her, but just to make sure that she's okay and that I'm okay and that we're in a good place. And I do that with a lot of my friends. You know, and then if if there is a chance to vent or, you know, if there's, you know, a new squeeze that we need to have discussions about at that moment or, you know, we're just feeling exhausted and tired because we're counting down the days until school holidays. Um, as someone that works in school, I'm not, not sure about parents though. <laughs> but it's, it's so important just to, to tap in like that and just say, are you okay? How's your day? What are you doing? Do you need to talk or do you need a drink or two or ten? <laughs> you know, so the, you know, those are the people that 
that I was lucky enough to, to have in my space when I was growing up. And, and I wish that everyone had the opportunity to have that as well. There's something to be said about being a good friend. Mm. You know, what you're, what you're saying here is like really important. And I think that's like kind of what we're all doing in a way is like, how do we show up better for each other mm. in, you know, a diaspora of ways? Like, you know, with your professional life, with your personal mm. life, and with all the different areas of life, how do we show up for each other? And I think that, that um, being a good friend is like a really important part of that. Amen. Such powerful stories, ladies. I'm so, so grateful. I want to uh, just ask one more question of you, each of you, and it's a quick one so that we'll have time to take questions quickly from the crowd. And this question is just a little one of, okay, so we're asking, hey, auntie, how'd you not give up? But what about, hey, auntie, what happened when you didn't give up? For me, what happened when I didn't give up was that everything I was terrified of happened. All the things that I thought would destroy me occurred. And I'm still here. Because <laughs> it is incredible what happens if you just hang in there. It's amazing what you'll find on the other side of that terrible thing. So that's what happened when I didn't give up. But yeah. I'm living, and I'm really happy about that. <laughs> uh, I didn't give up because I'm surrounded by mirrors and windows that reflect back to me the possibilities of what I can be every single day. Uh, when I didn't get up, give up, um, new doors of opportunity came. I also got the ability to understand myself more and what I need as a person, um, not just as myself, but how I'm a good friend, how I'm a good partner, what I want to see and have in a partner for myself. Um, those are the things that I got. And I'm so, like, can't even explain to you how amazing my life is right now and I think I don't know what it is but like you know I'm, I turned 30 in February and I feel like just that shift of being from you know your 20s into your 30s you're just like no nah, I'm not I'm not taking this crap no more <laughs> to have things and you know I have desires I have wants I have me I have needs and I'm, I'm going to search for them and I'm going to get them for myself so that's what I got biggest not getting up moment was when I decided to lean into what my life was presented before me with my son. Um, and it actually involved a relationship with myself. I had to like go really deep into myself. Um, you know, a whole lot of mixed things. Forgiveness of just, you know, um, uh, you know, this hard kind of judgment that I had on for myself, you know, going, something told me that something was wrong and you didn't listen. And 
And um, I think for me, yeah, it was just that, that whole thing of like not giving up and going into myself to understand the possibilities and the, the purpose of what my mm -hmm. life was and the purpose of what my son's life was and together what we are as a unit. To finish this panel, you will not make me cry. <laughs> Thank you so much, ladies. While Miss Riz sets up over here where she will be DJing for us, I'm going to pass the mic around and we're going to have a couple of questions. <laughs> I, I've been writing feverishly the whole time you guys have been talking. I'm not going to say everything I wrote down because we don't have another two hours. Layla, I wanted to say, Layla, thank you so much for that last bit that you shared about um, what your guardian said to you. Um, it resonated a lot for me with things that my mom said to me when I was growing up. And the other reason I wanted to say thank you was because uh, for me, I've definitely had my own colorful bit of traumas in my life, um, but they haven't always been explicitly connected to my race or my gender. They've been things around death, things around childhood sexual abuse, drug, you know, lots of things that can happen to anyone. Um, and I think for me, it's been Sometimes it's been difficult to remember to be okay with enjoying my life as well and be okay with celebrating happiness and recognizing that celebrating happiness is as much an important thing as taking the time to acknowledge pain and uh, things that have happened. And I wanted to say, oh, damn it. Uh, I wanted to say that, yeah, this panel in general has been really good because it's just helped me do a whole stream of consciousness about things, which I won't go into now, but I will just leave you guys with this thought that I had in terms of about vulnerability is strength, leaning into your vulnerability, making a, making a mental health team, that's strength, that's strong as hell. Um, and I was going to say, I was thinking to myself, I feel, I always feel like a strong black woman whenever I fart in an elevator and then walk away. <laughs> that's all. I I love that so much. I love that so much because you know what that is that is so true because part of the pressure on us is to be so polished and above reproach all the time. I'm telling you even that is subversive and I love it. Would anybody else like to ask a question? I'm just going to be roving reporter here. Thank you so much to all of the panelists. Um, a lot of those conversations were really like close to the bone for me. Um, I wasn't expecting to, yeah, have uh, such a strong reaction to a lot of the things that you were all saying. Layla, I, I, I just wanted, I'm still trying to understand this idea of what it means to be a political statement as a black woman. I'm just wondering if you can just help me unpack that a bit more. Because I, I know, I, I understand it, but I just, I just feel like I need to kind of break it down or just unpack the complexity of what it actually means and what it represents. Yeah, okay, so um, my guardian that I grew up with, um, he was an incredible intellectual. Um, he, like, knocked around with, like, Charlie Perkins, Sir Doug Nichols, like, he was a part of that space. So I am still at 30 years old after however many years since, you know, I was seven years old, when, six years old when he told me this, I'm still unpacking what that actually means myself as a person, but my understanding of it is what I was saying before, representation. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have the privilege or the opportunity to just be not seen in the sense that whatever we do, 
will always be judged in some way, shape or form. Um, whether you choose to dress a certain way, have your hair a certain way, you know, talk in a certain way, um, listen to particular music when people perceive that you should be listening to something else. Um, there's always this perception around you and it's not just from um, the mainstream community, it's not just from the white community, but it's also an inter-community thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, can't, I can't even count the amount of times I've been called a coconut. Right? I can't even count. But at the end of the day, I am lucky enough uh, that I know where I am from. I know my community, I know my culture, I know my clan, I know my bloodlines and where they have been for the last 60,000 years. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. All of this, you know, me being on television, presenting well, you know, speaking the way that I speak and, and whatnot, they're all just a part of who I am as a person. But at the end of the day, I know who I am down here. Does that make sense? I love that, Layla. I also want to say that I'm a member of a displaced people and I want you to know that if you are getting that coconut stuff, that whatever, that blah, 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 expectation nonsense, that um, finding for me, finding the place that I knew my identity was anchored, I don't have the, the beautiful ability to trace my people back like that, but I found the components of my personhood, my soul, that were things that were indivisible from me, not things that were provided by external inputs, and that made all that stuff just so irrelevant. So if you're lucky enough to have an incredible access to that, wonderful, draw strength from that. But many of us may not be in that position. And I think all of us are called to find the foundational parts of our identity and to always keep coming back to them when you face, I believe the young people call them haters. <laughs> I, I think we have time for one more question. Okay, I'm going to pass this up to the back, you guys. Watch me go, watch me go. Hi, ladies. Um, yeah, it's been really wonderful listening to you. My question's for Namila and for Grace. As mothers, how do you manifest, express, or show vulnerability um, in your relationships with your children? Because um, we've talked a lot about being the strong black woman, and I'm from Zimbabwe, where that is just the staple. I only saw my mother cry once, you know, in my whole life. And so there is something about, I don't know about other cultures, but African women don't like to show that vulnerability. And, and so now, like, how do, we, how do we do that as mothers to the next generation? Because I think that's, maybe that's a topic to be had. Yeah, so and I, I can feel how everybody kind of went, mothers. Yeah, so, because, I mean, our worst fear, well, for me, at some point was turning into my mother. There's amazing qualities about her, but there are things that terrify me about passing that on to my children. So, yeah, my question is, yeah, how do you be a vulnerable mother who's real? Or something <laughs> amazing question uh, <laughs> I mean I think it's a bit different for me um, I think my motherhood is very different from a lot of people um, who experience you know motherhood in a normal way um, you know because my son is constantly vulnerable. So 
I, I, I have to be as vulnerable as he is as well, you know. Um, yeah, I think it's probably, I, I don't know really how to answer that for me. But Grace, <laughs> but Grace, I actually think that that was a choice that you made. Yeah. I think it's beautiful actually because there's a lot of people who, when faced with vulnerability, they find it terrifying and they try and respond. I'm talking about myself, okay? <laughs> they try and respond by being very strong. And if I really, I super identified with what you said, Taku, because I know that a lot of the hardest parts of my mother that I, when I looked at her when I was younger, did not want to replicate were the most frightened parts of her and were the hardness that she formed in reaction to that incredible vulnerability she feared. So the fact you chose vulnerability is a choice and it should be recognized and you should be proud. I just, I'm going to jump in because I got some kids. <laughs> um, and I wanted to say that the attitude, uh, I first want to preface this by saying if you met my kids, you would think, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> they are they are wild they're amazing and they're wild and one is 14 and one is 11 and I have a three-year-old nephew who I'm raising with my sister so it's a lot but the attitude of all of you is welcome with me is a really powerful one and I think we started with a quote about the more no one can uh, diminish in me what I know of myself is that is something like the that? Things that I accept about myself, nobody can use to diminish me. Okay. Okay. So following on from that, that's so beautiful. If I know myself really well, and if I if all of me is welcome with me, and if I know the darkest parts of me and the most mighty parts of me and the soft tender parts and the silly ridiculous parts and the parts that mess up all the time, and if I can make space for all of those and hold them gently and move with agility between any which one of those that I need, then I no one can diminish me because I'm making them welcome. And I think extending that generosity to children, to anyone actually, but especially to your children, it doesn't mean all of your behavior is okay. It doesn't mean smack me in the face and I will just love you and make you a cup of tea. But it just means your feeling is valid and I see it and you're welcome, and your behavior will work on that together, if that makes sense. Incredible. Well, I think it's really, thank you for your question too. It is a great question. It's something that I'm constantly thinking about in terms of my mothering. Um, and it's important for me, for my boys to see everything that is their mother. So they get the ugly bits of me, they get the angry bits of me, they get the very, very tender, loving and passionate bits of me. And I think that's really important because I think, especially because I'm raising two boys, there's this whole thing around Australian masculinity where there's such discomfort with dealing with really difficult feelings. And I don't want my boys to be like that. I want them to lean into discomfort and to develop some sort of understanding about why mummy's crying or why she's heartbroken, all those sorts of things. And they're five and six, but they're very, very smart. Kids are so smart. And yes, they're vulnerable as well, but I think that is equipping them to help build their resilience as they get older. And I have very difficult questions uh, very difficult conversations with my sons because they ask me 
difficult conversations and think they, they see that mummy is different to the other mummies that they see in the schoolyard. But the way, you know, so many times that I send this to the sisters as well, like my six-year-old, um, even just the other day, I've got all these photos of pictures that he's drawn um, in an overwhelmingly white school where he's written, I love mummy, she is so beautiful, her melanin is beautiful. You know, it's things like that. And that, to me, is so special and you know, I have to instill that in them because they will constantly be fed the messaging that they are not enough and I want them to know and believe that they are actually more than. Bravo. Thank you so much. Those were incredible questions. I'm sorry we don't have time to take more. Um, this panel has been... I knew, I know that you are incredible women and I am so grateful for you sharing. Um, but that was even more than I could have hoped for. So thank you so much, ladies, for sharing. I'm going to interrupt you here. Okay. Has everyone in this room listened to the podcast? Yeah? Everyone will. I think what has been like resounding answer in our questions about how you keep going is things like sisterhood and mentors and visibility and Chantal here is providing that for all of us. So give it up for Chantal. Thank you so much, guys. I reckon it's about time we call that a wrap. The amazing Miss Risk is here. We have a little bit of time, and not only is Miss Risk here, our incredible friends from Neurofona at the back, if you think you've experienced the nurturing environment of Hey Auntie, you ain't heard nothing yet. Go back there, pick one of the aunties from the gallery, put on a pair of Neurophones. They're like technology that is beyond my comprehension, they'll explain. Um, and experience Hey Auntie in our listening gallery. The music won't even bother you. It's magic. Um, and then uh, we have some incredible photographers out there. Atong. You guys know Atong. She, she has joined us and she is taking portraits in Auntie's family portrait booth. So go have your portraits taken with you and your friends and your new friends. I would love to see them. Judge that hair, grab a drink, listen to the music, mingle. You are all welcome. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Listening back to the show has given me goosebumps and butterflies all over again. It was a magical evening and I'm so excited that I got to share it with you. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to my amazing panellists once again. They were so brilliant and to everybody who came along to the live show and to you for listening in today. And 
thanks for listening to season one this is the finale of the first season of hey auntie podcast as rookie podcaster it has been an incredible ride and i have been literally overwhelmed by the support thank you thank you thank you now we're going to have a little break over the summer holidays because we're cooking up exciting plans to come back with a bigger, better, smoother, more polished Hey Auntie for season two. I cannot wait to share with you the stuff that we've got in uh, plans for you. Um, In the meantime, if you are bored, you want to listen to something while you're relaxing by the pool this summer, why not listen again to the rest of the season? I know that I tend to listen to the episodes a good few times and get so much out of them every time I re-listen. The auntie's stories are so dense with goodness and so much to laugh about and reflect on and learn from. I guess that's the beauty of a great story, right? Um, In the meantime, it would be amazing if you like the show, if you enjoy the show, if you would give it a listen on iTunes, maybe like and subscribe on Spotify, maybe like and subscribe on SoundCloud. If you really like the podcast, a review would do so much for us. It's so wonderful to know that you're enjoying it. Those five-star reviews on iTunes make all the difference in podcast land. Perhaps share the pod. I know that I'm planning to be doing a heck of a lot of binge listening over the summer. I'll be reading, I'll be doing audiobooks, and I'm going to be really topping up on my favourite podcasts. And if you love Hey Auntie, I know that you have a girlfriend, a guy friend, who may really enjoy it too. So give it a share. Spread the love, spread the goodness, support your local girl gang. Now guys, the best way to keep up with us over the break is to keep an eye on our socials, especially Instagram, which is Hey Auntie Pod. Um, We're going to be sharing updates there still, and we're going to be sharing the first look there at all of the exciting stuff we have coming up for season two. Wow, I think that's about it. Thank you so much. Cannot wait to be back in February with more Hey Auntie goodness for you. Take care, loves. Talk soon. Oh, 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 oh,